Hi hi and welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today we're going to talk about the way that conspiratorial thinking has affected the social consciousness. From regular people, to even journalists, politicians, and even some figures in scientific communities. We're going to look at the similarities between various types of conspiratorial thinking, the examples and real-life impacts that it has on not only actions far away but also on our own, and also at how we need to approach this going forward. So without further ado, let's get started with probably the most pressing example, which is in Myanmar, a country formerly known as Burma, in which social media posts fueled sectarian religious conflicts, rioting, and eventually caused the deaths of many people. Now, it follows a pattern of various types of disinformation that is spread in order to provoke and in order to cause damage in a given country or region. Essentially, what happened is that social media was used to stir up religious conflicts. They were used to stir up and exacerbate existing tensions between people who are living in Myanmar, and they posed as various outsider groups or various extremist groups that were supposedly planning to take some sort of action. Of course, there never was this type of plot to begin with. However, in response to this, there was violence because people felt it was justified by the perceived threat. A threat that once again was not actually real, but ended up with having very real consequences, including what the UN has termed a genocide. That is the scale at which disinformation plays. And it's not just in Myanmar. As we'll talk about, it's infected areas including the United States and other Western countries. Let's cut to the chase. If you follow the news, particularly if you're an American, you might have heard by now of QAnon. QAnon is essentially a conspiracy theory that strings together all sorts of politicians, public figures, celebrities, and other powerful people, and accuses them all of engaging in a child sex trafficking ring. There is no evidence to back up the claims against almost all notable figures, with one exception, Jeffrey Epstein. As with many past conspiracy theories, even some from before the internet age, there is often a very small grain of truth that, while does not justify the entire theory, provides sort of a window into that conspiratorial lens of thinking. Of course, Epstein is a very real man who held wealth and power and did engage in sexual abuse and did engage in sexual assault and trafficking of underage girls. However, with the Epstein event and with the rising tide of accusations of sexual assault, sexual misconduct, and other likewise claims, there has been an increase of this conspiracy theory that alleges, for example, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Hollywood actors, other politicians, Barack Obama, for example. It essentially just tries to tie almost every powerful person you can think of to this vast grand conspiracy theory that they're all in on. Once again, when dealing with this type of information, what you have to do is you have to lay things out at an abstract level, and you have to look at what data there is to actually support your claims. Let's start with the best interpretation. There has been real government and police reporting on what has gone on with Epstein. 
Epstein has engaged in criminal misconduct with regards to minors. He has been sentenced in the past, and even more charges have come up now. He has also had connections and parties with various figures, including Bill Clinton. However, if you look at some of the broader claims, including the scale of the people who are involved with Epstein, including many people who actually had no interaction with Epstein at all, as well as to the various allegations outside of sexual abuse, including cannibalism and child dismemberment, there is no evidence whatsoever that even Epstein committed those types of things. However, this has also gained media prominence, particularly in the United States, with reporters even asking Trump questions about QAnon, and also having various QAnon representatives make television appearances on Fox News, a major cable network in the United States, as well as having several people running for Congress who has subscribed to some of these beliefs, at least part of the conspiracy theory. This is incredibly problematic, as it promotes this and it promotes it towards people who are simply willing to listen to authority, such as the authority of a mainstream network or a congressperson, without actually thinking. And here, again, lies the problem. You have to confront the information like this, you have to look at what tangible evidence there actually is, and most importantly, you have to not fall for confirmation bias. Very often, what happens with conspiracy theories just like QAnon, and just like the ones that sparked the conflict in Myanmar, is that people based large, broad-scale assumptions off of individual events that hold no statistical significance. One example that I have had actual QAnon believers make is, oh, if Epstein was doing something like this, then why wouldn't Bill Clinton be doing it? Why wouldn't all of these people be doing it? Of course, that argument is flawed in and of itself, and doesn't actually provide any evidence to prove further claims. Just because there is one occurrence of an event doesn't mean that it's the pattern. In fact, if there is exactly one, or if there is a small number of said events, then it's likely to be an outlier. However, a more dangerous effect can occur when you have social media. People often refer to this as a filter bubble, where you get recommended more and more towards people who you agree with, people who share the same views, including views that may not be based on fact, and because of this, you get referred to more and more extreme content. However, this isn't just about polarization, it's also about statistics. In the modern interconnected age, it's often incredibly easy to find individual stories. Consider the following example. If you have one person murdered in a city of, say, 100,000 people, that might seem like a significant news story. It may seem like a significant news story if there were, say, 10 people murdered in a year. If there's just one such example in a city of 100,000, it's still an important story for that local area. It is a grievous act with real consequences. However, most people are wise enough to notice that this does not indicate anything about the city as a whole. It is an outlier, and there is no evidence that it actually shares any sort of conspiratorial lens with regards to either 
organized terrorism in that city because it's just one event that is happening in isolation. Consider a larger city, say 10 million people. If they were having the same rate of attacks as that smaller city with 100,000 people, then they would be affected by 100 such incidents per year. This then seems like a pattern to people who are not statistically educated, to people who are not actually paying attention to what is happening. Of course, if you think about it logically, if you have one of these attackers in one city, and then you took the people in a hundred of these different cities and you pooled them together, then you would think to yourself, oh, that makes sense. If there's a hundred times more people, then there would be a hundred times more incidents. It's something very straightforward that you can do with just a pen and paper. And I would encourage you, whenever you hear a story, or whenever you feel like you are overwhelmed by stories that are just one-off narratives of something incredibly bad happening, you do a simple Google search about the population of the area that's being described. So if it's something that's happening in your city, the population of your city, if it's something that's happening in your country, then the population of your country. You do that calculation and you look at the odds. And if it's something like one in a million, then that's significantly lower than the rate of severe mental illness. It's significantly lower than the rate of death as a whole. And it's likely not to indicate anything at all. However, returning to the idea of social media, often these one-off examples can be sourced from around the world because of how interconnected social media is. That allows people to bring up one of these examples every year, every month, maybe even every day. In fact, that is often exactly what a QAnon believer's newsfeed looks like. They often receive day after day of ch missing child reports, of kidnappings, of sexual assault cases. And if they're seeing that sort of information day after day, then a normal person's intuition is going to assume that there is some sort of pattern there. If you were seeing on the news that there were new cases of child kidnappings every single day, and you're also seeing that politicians seemingly weren't prioritizing this over other issues, then it's very likely that you would be suspicious as well. This type of thinking is exactly what leads people to believe in conspiracy theories, particularly in this modern day and age. To make matters worse, there is targeted disinformation from various foreign sources, as well as from other malicious actors. What this means is that they can use social media analytics, they can use data collected about individuals in order to make their ads more effective, in order to propagate this disinformation and to stir up more conflict among a specific group of people, often leading to violence. Many QAnon-related news stories, quote-unquote news stories, have been traced back to foreign sources, including the Russian state-sponsored agency, the Internet Research Agency, which, while has a fairly clean name, is actually responsible for controlling fake accounts on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and spreading false information, including, as I talked about before, exacerbating existing demographic tensions in a country, 
and in spreading conspiracy theories such as QAnon. Going forward, I want you to keep a very important principle in mind. Make sure that you distinguish between the Epstein events and the QAnon theories. What this means is that when you see something extremely tragic, extremely grievous, and extremely unjust, you should take a step back, try your very best to quell your emotions, and then look at the statistics. Because otherwise, it is incredibly easy to fall for these targeted campaigns, to fall for these politically motivated attacks, and to quite frankly, end up falling into a cult-like conspiracy. However, what makes matters worse is that journalists are human, just like all of us. And just like many people, although probably not as many people as are listening to this podcast, journalists often tend to be technologically illiterate. In fact, if they're in a role as a journalist, as opposed to my major mathematics, or as opposed to various other scientific fields, then they might even be less likely than the average person to understand statistics. As I also talked about before, journalism also has various negative traits that are incredibly poor and incredibly damaging in the modern world, including having a narrative bias, including trying to tell things in the form of stories instead of simply presenting the facts that are happening, instead of simply presenting a dry sort of fact reporting, modern journalism often involves some amount of dramatization. It often involves intentionally emotionalizing various news stories, and this can lead to a state of mind that is even more susceptible to this type of conspiratorial targeting. You probably think that it can't get much worse than that. There are journalists susceptible to this kind of conspiratorial targeting, and there even has been mainstream appearances of QAnon believers and other conspiracy believers on a major American television network. Well, what if I told you that there have been major print publications, as well as other cable publications, that have not only had individuals embracing this, but also had conspiratorial lenses of thinking all the way up through the chain of administration? Of course, we have to talk about Russian racial suppressive conspiracies. Of course, you may have heard about election interference in the United States. Much of this was politicized. Many attempted to tie it to Trump's real election misconduct, even though there was not necessarily a link between the two. The Mueller report found no evidence of collusion between Trump and the interference from the Russians. However, this interference nonetheless had a significant impact on the progression of political debate in the United States, as well as had influence from other countries. However, Russia seems to have the most success here, particularly in exacerbating some of those tensions in the United States. They have also proven to be very resourceful in terms of targeting individual journalists and spreading disinformation through them. In fact, reputable reporters from sources including the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News have all retweeted IRA accounts, Internet Research Agency accounts. Once again, to remind you, the IRA is a group of Russian propagandists 
who are spreading fake news stories through social media. However, not only have people mistakenly retweeted these statements from fake accounts, but they have also embraced some of the messaging that these accounts have propagated. So, back to the name. Why Russian Racial Suppressive Conspiracies? That's some of the technical language that was used to describe the various attacks that Russian state-affiliated actors had launched during the 2016 election. Many intelligence officials believe that the intent was to suppress voters and to make them feel disillusioned with the American electoral system, particularly on the lines of race. There comes the first three descriptors of this acronym, Russian Racial Suppressive Conspiracies. I will refer to this as RRSCs for the rest of this episode, and with a few reminders going on, I will use this acronym sometimes in future episodes as well. Now, because these types of conspiracies are incredibly effective at touching real political divides, and at bringing out emotion that is already tense in certain periods, many people will react negatively to this. That's okay. It's not anything due to intelligence or status if someone has indeed fallen for these types of conspiracy theories. It's a matter of what training they have received, and a matter of the news sources that they consume, as well as a good measure of dumb luck. Something the Russians, once again, are incredibly good at doing is playing both sides. They have special stories crafted for various demographics, including the mostly right-wing supporters of the QAnon conspiracy theories, and the mostly left-wing supporters of some of these RRSCs. However, the core difference here, and why the latter is actually more threatening, is because of the permeation into various news sources. Many of the RRSCs revolve around a single framework that is driven along racial or religious lines. It often accuses groups of a particular race of having an insider bias. It often accuses many groups of having rigged the system, quote-unquote, of having established a framework in order to oppress people of a certain race. Often, this is given, once again, as an us-versus-them. Sometimes this is targeted towards Jewish people. This had horrible consequences in Nazi Germany. This, in fact, is still a trope that is being used in many of these suppressive conspiracies. However, what has become even more in vogue is also targeting Asians, particularly people of Chinese descent. There have been various conspiracy theories about, essentially, immigrants trying to buy all of the land in an area and take it over. This has even been popular in Canada, particularly in the coastal cities of British Columbia, including Vancouver and Victoria. If you actually look at holdings, and if you actually look at the breakdown of investment, almost all investment comes domestically, whether it's in the US, where Americans are investing in America, and likewise, where Canadians are investing in Canada, and so on for almost every developed country. This has also had an increased spread in minority communities, which are often the communities most targeted by these RRSCs. Rising rates of anti-Semitism 
have also been reported in these minority communities, particularly in African-American communities, as well as sometimes in Latino communities. This is incredibly problematic, as we talked about before, there are very real-world consequences to this, and as we talked about in the last episode, escalating the tensions, particularly during election times, has an incredibly poor effect on election security and on trusting the vote. However, some of you in my audience who have been more informed about some of these intelligence reports notice that there is one major thing that I haven't talked about before. Keeping in mind all of the patterns that we've already looked at before, you can probably identify some of these cases now. There are often baseless claims that there are systems designed to, or conspiracies, organizations of people who are intentionally trying to harm African Americans or harm racial minorities in general. Moreover, there are further baseless claims that there is a conspiracy among all white people, among all non-African American people, or among all Americans, even people who are African American themselves, of trying to cause further harm. Many of these false accusations are leveled as part of shadowboxing, as part of lies about political opponents, and some, as with all of the other conspiracy theories, are propagated through social media, through people resharing stories, without actually understanding the statistics behind them. Often, this follows the same pattern as QAnon, and many of the social media posts preceding the genocide in Myanmar, that take advantage of and exacerbate very real histories, then turn to disinformation, spread negative sentiments through social media, and ultimately rely on a never-ending stream of individual cases that can only be presented because the world is so interconnected. One particularly egregious case was with the riot after a man killed himself in Minneapolis. Of course, this followed various other reactionary events that were meant to combat police brutality after specific instances of that occurring. Note that in almost all of these instances, there was no actual evidence of many of these broader conspiratorial claims. Now, what is often cited with regards to these conspiracy theories are individual cases where there may be mistreatment of an individual who may be African American. This includes cases like the George Floyd kneeling, as well as other police shootings. Keep in mind what I said at the beginning of the episode. We have to distinguish between the Epsteins and the QAnons. There is confirmed reporting from police and from government investigations, including the FBI. However, these do not indicate the broader conspiracy. They do not indicate that there are a vast amount of people who are working together in order to orchestrate these deaths. They do not indicate that there is any sort of intention, particularly a widespread intention, to cause these events. It does not mean that there does not need to be action taken. There absolutely does need to be action taken in order to reform any laws that may have enabled problematic decisions, and there definitely needs to be laws that allows police brutality to be punished. 
I've talked about this in the very first episode of this podcast. What needs to be done is to ensure that these aren't used, particularly by foreign agents, but also by some malicious actors domestically, in order to disenfranchise African American voters or minority voters as a whole, in order to spread conspiratorial thinking, in order to create a significant psychological cost for those minority communities. That is something that is at stake here. Not only are there negative political consequences, not only is there the hypothetical risk of violence, but there is active action that happens as a consequence of these conspiracies that reduce mental health outcomes, that reduce actual outcomes such as crime and economics. If you believe that there is a system that is either intent by very many people, by in fact a majority of the population, to actively harm a group of people based on immutable characteristics, as was often talked about by individuals with very prominent positions, either politicians or news figures or celebrities in the United States, then you are much more likely to take a response that you think is proportional to that type of conspiracy. That is why some people have attempted terror attacks in the name of QAnon, and likewise in response to many of these RRSCs. This is not helping anyone. Likewise, journalists need education in statistics. That's simply true if you actually look at what they do in their everyday jobs. I think this needs to be an active decision by institutions of higher education or even at the public school level. Journalists need to be able to understand the difference between correlation and causation. They need to be able to understand, they need to understand sample size, and they need to understand basic probability. If you have experience in any sort of scientific field, any involvement in any type of mathematics, then these are things that you know you would learn at a very, very entry-level way. It's not a lot to expect, especially from the people, especially from the people who are supposed to be the most informed of all. Moreover, there needs to be active statistical disclaimers on various news sources. This means that if you see something like a police shooting, that there needs to be a disclaimer talking about the total number of deaths from police shootings just as a fraction of the population. In fact, it's incredibly insignificant. We'd have a much better time saving people's lives if we just talked about car crashes or heart disease instead. The same is true for terrorism, by the way, although that has mostly died down. There was a complete media malfunction when it came to terrorism, particularly Islamic terrorism, which not only makes up a statistically irrelevant amount of deaths, but also has had very real tangible consequences, including the infringement of civil rights, civil liberties, through a massive surveillance state. These are negative consequences for all people, regardless of ideology. More often than not, the people hurt the most are the people targeted by the conspiracy theories. These are actions that are deliberately taken by bad actors in the United States, in Canada, and most prominently in enemy nations such as Russia. Quite frankly, 
I don't have a good way to transition to the positive, uplifting message that I usually like to say at the end of the episode. You guys know the stakes. And if you can just help one person get in touch with reality, that's a step closer to building a functional system and a functional government. And I deeply, deeply thank you from the bottom of my heart. We can do this, gang. Like, comment, share, subscribe, and talk to as many people as you can. Misinformation is no joke. Just take some time out of your day, talk to someone who you know, even if they don't believe in any sort of conspiracy theories whatsoever. Talk to them ahead of time, just in case, so that they have the tools you need, so that they are able to think about statistics, they're able to do basic division, and they're able to avoid some of these conspiratorial lines of thinking for the future. Thank you.